Good morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll take a short detour from the sermon series in 2 Corinthians and just look at a brief passage here in Hebrews this morning, Lord willing. It's important that you turn with me and we look together uh, at God's word. And as you're getting there, uh, let me suggest to our little theologians, if permitted, to that you may want to draw, <coughs> excuse me, you may want to draw a picture of a boat. Any kind of a boat will do, a rowboat, a motorboat, a sailboat, perhaps an ark. You ever looked, if this were turned upside down? Perhaps an ocean liner, perhaps a large freighter liner, Uh, those that are jammed with... uh, hundreds if not thousands of trailers. Um, A large boat, a small boat, doesn't matter. Just remember that any size boat that is not anchored can drift. It can be moved on the tide by the waves. So keep that in mind, a boat. Let me give you a little background here uh, as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We'll read here in just a second. In chapter 1, uh, the author of Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is the realization, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he's done that in chapter 1 by showing us that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God, that he's greater, he's more superior than anything, any angelic being. And then like a good instructor, he steps back and says, do you hear what I'm saying? Are you listening or are you awake? Are you alert? And he does this in the opening verses of Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear God's word. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God bore witness also by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. May the Lord help us to understand and to heed this portion of his word. 
It's an old story, you've heard it, about a naval destroyer. On a cold and bustery night, this large ship was operating off the rocky coast of Maine. And as the ship's captain was putting his great vessel through these maneuvers, they suddenly saw lights directly in their path ahead of them. The captain got on the radio and blast across the sea in a sense of urgency. I request that you alter your course 10 degrees to the east. The calm voice came back. I request you alter your course 10 degrees to the west. And with growing agitation, the captain got back on the radio and said, this is a United States Navy captain, and I request that you alter your course 10 degrees to the east. The convoy came back, this is a third class petty officer, and I request you change your course 10 degrees to the west. And by now the captain uh, agitated and thinking they're locked on a collision course, picked up the mic and screamed over it, this is a Navy destroyer and I demand that you alter your course 10 degrees to the east. A calm voice came back one more time, this is a lighthouse and I suggest you alter your course 10 degrees to the west. Now you've probably heard that, but whenever I read this text, I think of that again and think of the sheer folly of dashing ourselves at the foot of a light that is set there for our deliverance, for our salvation, because we ignore the signal that it's sending and demand that all the rest of the universe orient itself and shape its course according to my life, to my set of desires. And what I believe the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, listen, I've been telling you that Jesus Christ is even more glorious than the angels of heaven. And if that old covenant and in the Old Covenant, in Psalms and other places, the Old Covenant given to Moses on Sinai is spoken of as having been mediated or given him by angels. The author says, in an argument from the lesser to the greater, if that covenant, that was given by angels was so important that any violation of it resulted in tremendous judgment, how much more important is this covenant, this new covenant that has been brought to us by the very Son of God? How can we possibly ignore it without it being to our peril? And so he gives us uh, here a word of warning, but he also gives us a tremendous word of encouragement if we're willing to set our course by the light 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I really want to look at this in three ways this morning. So if you're looking for a, uh, a way to hang your thoughts or, uh, or an outline, here it is. First, uh, just to look uh, at the nature of the great salvation and the reason the author used that particular term to describe it to us. Secondly, we'll see him call three witnesses, beginning with the second half of the third verse, calling forth the witnesses to show us that this indeed is the great salvation, the one that saves, the only one that saves, exclusively saves, many philosophies, many religions, many other attempts at answering our need, but he brings forth three witnesses to tell us that this is the only answer to man's greatest needs. And then finally, we will see him really challenge us and warn us that you don't dare ignore this, and this is what you need to do instead. Now let's look at the expression that he uses. Such a great salvation because, because I believe it's an expression that tends to be used less and less now. Um, we have a sort of a mixed company here, many from uh, different backgrounds. Uh, uh, and yet when we hear testimonies of people coming to unite in membership with our church, uh, it's always interesting to me that there, there's one expression that's rather infrequently used in a person's testimony. Uh, we will say, and now I'm talking about myself here as well, we will say, uh, and, I, and I'm not poking fun at anybody, again, uh, I tend to do this as well. Um, but we'll say, I believed in Christ as my Savior back uh, in school, or, or I believed in, in Christ at a, at a certain time, or I first, I first trusted the Lord in, in such and such a, a, a time, or uh, I'm not sure of the day or the time or, or an event or anything, but I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, or sometimes we, we use the language of conversion. I was converted at camp, or I was converted uh, in college. Um, now, what's the problem with that? Don't we believe? Don't we trust? Don't we receive? Don't we accept? Don't we need to be converted? Certainly. Yes. But if we exclusively use that kind of language, it really shows something of our understanding. First of all, if our language is always in terms of what I have done, I received, I accepted, it kind of pictures this poor little lonely Jesus, bereft, uh, helpless, alone, longing for someone to welcome him. Oh, well, yes, you can come into my heart, I know it's cold outside. Rather than the picture in, in scripture of the glorious 
Lord of the universe who presents the only offer of hope and calls us into a saving relationship with him. If I always put it in terms of my faith, my acceptance, the danger is of thinking that salvation is really something that I have done rather than something that God has done for me. Even if I speak in terms of of conversion, which does speak of the need of change. I was like this and I was converted, I was changed. I, I turned around, still there's the danger of exclusively speaking in terms of my autonomy, my own ability to do something for myself that, that needed to be done. When the scriptures prefer the grand word salvation, Because a person that needs to be saved is someone in a desperate plight. Someone who is in a dire situation. Someone who is in a situation from which he or she cannot deliver themselves. This is the consistent picture that the scripture gives us of our plight, of our estate, naturally. I don't stand hungry uh, in a grocery store with money in my pocket and cry, help me, I'm starving. I take the money, the means at my disposal, and I buy food. I don't, if I'm uh, in the water well within the range of shore, I don't cry for help, I swim in. But a person who is drowning then the word save me is real, immediate, consuming. And the one who comes alongside in a boat and snatches that person out of the water is seen as a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. And the heart is filled with gratitude and one recognized that if it wasn't for this one, this one who championed my cause, this one who did what I could not do for myself, I would be dead. And perhaps the reason I think for little permeating gratitude in the hearts of many Christians, the reason that praise doesn't arise spontaneously, the reason that our hearts are not filled with joy to the Lord is because we've thought of it really as a transaction, a business deal. Okay, God says, here are the terms. Hmm, let's see. Yeah, I can handle that. I can believe, I can receive, I can go to church occasionally. The bottom line is that I can take care of this. I can make this deal. I'll believe and my testimony will be, I finally saw the light. I finally figured it out. I finally turned around. I finally quit doing what I was doing. But the author here uses the word salvation 
Because what he's talking about is what you and I could not do for ourselves. A holy God and a sinful humanity and an unbridgeable gulf except for God's grace in sending his son of whom the author is speaking and to whom uh, uh, the one to come and to bear my sin and carry it to the cross and nail my debt to the cross in order that through faith in him I might have life everlasting. He has done what I could not do. It is such a great salvation. It should fill my heart with joy. It should change everything. Nothing should ever be the same. Now, before we we look at why that's true or how that's true, we might immediately say, well, why should I believe this? There are lots of voices out there. There are lots of sages and prophets and philosophers Why listen to this instead of the other? So the author calls three witnesses. The first witness that he calls is very naturally this Jesus about whom he's been speaking. That's in the second half of verse three. He says, this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. He's talking there about Jesus in his earthly ministry. And what he is saying is this, that Jesus didn't just come and live this beautiful life and kind of walk uh, uh, a foot above the ground and say lovely things and scatter petals of wisdom and then disappear one day. Jesus taught and said things about himself that if they were not true means that he was blaspheming. The Jewish leaders um, compelled the Romans to put him to death for being blasphemous. Why? Because he wasn't, um, if he wasn't everything that he claimed to be, he was a blasphemer. And under their law should have been put to death. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am And the Jews knew exactly what he meant by that saying, I am. Jesus was looking back at the word that God spoke to Moses concerning the exodus of his people. When Moses said, whom shall I say has sent me? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. And Jesus over again in his ministry would take to himself that name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. I am the eternal self-sustaining one. And so, of course, the unbelieving Jews considered this blasphemous. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, that is not the word of a good teacher. That is not the word of a fine example. That is the word of a charlatan. That is the word of a madman if it is not absolutely accurate and true. Jesus called himself the son of God and he said that he'd come bearing the only salvation for sin of his people 
and the author says, you ignore his testimony of himself to your peril. He says this great salvation first was the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. But he doesn't stop there. He says, even those that saw him and heard him, eyewitnesses, the disciples turned apostles have brought forth their witness. Again in verse three, again, this great salvation was attested to us by those who heard. These are the ones that had run away in Jesus' greatest hour of need. These are the ones who ran in fear and they don't simply come back together later and say, you know, we really blew it. We shouldn't have run from our leader when he was killed. Uh, let's make up a story. Let's say that he rose from the dead and let's go back out there and be real brave for the next 30 or 40 years and let's go to horrifying deaths for the sake of this life so that people will at last think more of us. People don't do that. People don't band together and go to death for the sake of a lie. This didn't get them applause or the kind of hearing an egomaniac would seek. It caused them persecution. It brought them prison, the loss of all things. And tradition tells us that all but John went to rather horrifying deaths, maintaining the testimony that Christ was risen and speaking of this great salvation of God. And so the author says they bear witness and you know these things, you know these men, you know them, you, you've met them, you've talked to them, and you and I have their testimony, this record that they've left us. And then he brings a third witness, God himself in verse four, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I pray for the power of the Spirit. We pray for a fresh wind of the Spirit. We pray that God would rend the heavens and come down and revive us again. We pray for the encouraging things that we hear, hear about in Wilmore, Kentucky and, and Cleveland, Tennessee. We pray for people to be healed. We pray for God to move and work in wonderful, wonder-filled ways. And we thank him for that. And we don't want for one minute to put God in a box. But we dare not fail to see what the scripture does teach us about the purpose and nature of Jesus' miracles and the purpose and nature of the apostles' miracles and is what he's referring to here. 
How ultimately did God bear his witness to Jesus and to the watching world that this was his son? And how did God bear witness to the apostles? We are told in God's word that the way that he bore witness was through signs and wonders and miracles. And I think too many people go to the Bible and say, well, it's, it's just a book filled with the supernatural. That's all it is. It's all about the supernatural. People walking around, all kinds of miracles taking place. Now, that's not the kind of world I live in. Let me tell you, it's not the kind of world they lived in either. That's why they were so thunderstruck. That's why they were so astonished when something like this happened, when natural laws were suspended. The Bible records thousands of years of history and only in a handful of times in that history, in a period of just a few years in each of those times, were there miraculous events recorded. And those were when God was doing something, as it were, spectacular in the history of redemption. When the movement of redemption was, as it were, pressing forward or turning a corner or reaching a new apex. And we see signs and wonders given for God to say, look at this, take note of these things. This is of me. And so in Acts 2.22, we have Peter saying these words about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, accredited by God to you. How? How did God accredit Jesus as his son? By miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, even the enemies of our Lord didn't dispute the fact that he worked miracles. They falsely attributed them to Satan. They would say, obviously, he does these things by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus, this Jesus, you know, did things that a person can't do unless God is with him. And there are marks of God's hand upon him. Jesus even drew attention to this in John 10, 25. He said, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak of me. And again, in verse 38 of that same chapter, even if you don't believe me, believe the miracles you've seen me do. Same was true of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, remember the problem that Paul had with the churches. Some of the churches were reluctant to accept him as a full-fledged apostle because he hadn't been a, uh, one of the original disciples. He didn't have those great stories like, like Simon Peter had. So, yeah, I remember when we were back on the lake and we were cooking fish and had breakfast and all of these things, although Paul did have encounters with Christ. So there were some who questioned his authenticity, his apostleship. 
And so Paul was having to prove his credentials as an apostle. And what is the ultimate credential he gives to say that I am one of God's special emissaries. I am a sent one of God, an apostle. He says, the things that mark an apostle, that is the signs of an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done by me among you. So what the author is saying is that God bore witness to the testimony of these men and Jesus by doing something that that he doesn't ordinarily do, and that is by giving spectacular, confirming signs, wonders, and miracles. Okay, you say, Eric, provisional coordinator of congregational care. P-C-C-C. Okay, Eric. What does this have to do with me? How should this affect my life? Well, look again, finally. At the opening verse. He says we're to pay more careful attention to such a great salvation. And we say, we're not ignoring it. We're paying attention. I mean, we're here. But then he gives a picture of a way that you and I can be careless and ignore, as it were, this great salvation He says, lest we drift away from it. It's not the picture of one saying, you know, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm I'm non-religious. I don't want anything to do with those things. The word that is translated here was a word that that the Greeks used for a boat that had slipped its moorings accidentally and now was just drifting, as it were, drifting toward the rocks, almost imperceptibly, drifting in on the tide. It was also a a picture uh, uh, of a ring, a little too big, sort of sliding down toward the knuckle, and then off the the finger, and the person was unaware of it. The ring was about to drop and fall away. 24 hours after we were given our senior rings in high school, uh, mine was at the bottom of Lyman Lake. The next day I'm out there swimming and boom, whatever happened to my ring? I had it for 24 hours. This picture wasn't a person who had taken off his wedding ring and said, I don't ever want to see her again and throw it into the field. It isn't a picture of someone getting into their boat and saying, I'm just gonna steer this onto these rocky shoals. It's a word that's used also to picture liquid in a container, slowly leaking out the bottom. You ever had that happen to you? You come home from the market, you put things away, put the milk away, come back a little later, what's that sour smell? 
And you see that puddle. You see that puddle. The container had a, a slit, a break, a crack. And you didn't notice it. That's the word. That's what is translated here, drifting away. He's describing people who are moving further and further away from God without even knowing it. People who think they're the real thing, but may not be. People who say all the right things while all the while their lives are drifting further and further away. And in spite of the testimony, the final word of the Lord Jesus and the testimony of his apostles, in spite of the fact that God himself has borne witness to them and spoken through them in mighty ways, we care more about other things than we care about this one great thing. I was thinking about this text this week, trying to have the Lord speak to my heart uh, in my inclination to drift away in an almost imperceptible way, no turning away, no denial, no failure to believe the right things. Just perhaps being self-deceived in allowing other things other affections to become so important that the one great thing, this great salvation, which alone is life, is perhaps slipping further away. And I ask you this day, as I ask myself, what is it in your life what is it that really brings you joy? What is it that, that gets you going and makes you focused and alert and paying attention? I pray that we together might seek him afresh with alert and keen and expectant senses lest we drift away. God help us. God help us that we embrace unreservedly with all our hearts this great salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to love you as the angels love you. Help me, help us to seek your face because you are our heart's delight, our joy. Be unto us, O oh God, the lover of our souls. And may we not let any enterprise, any interest, anything, however good, however worthwhile, however wholesome, usurp that place that belongs to you alone, lest we drift away and dash upon the rocks. We look to you, O oh God, help us to this end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.